Britain, men and women are foregoing the 9 till 5 jobs introduced during the industrial age as they embrace new technologies within the digital revolution. And these two chaps are here to help. Welcome to the Powerful Nonsense Podcast, the show about mindfulness and entrepreneurship in the digital economy. With your hosts, Wayne Ingram and Jem Yildiz. Well, bonfire nights out the way. The countdown to Christmas has begun. I didn't really do anything for bonfire night this year, just... Neither did I. Heard a few of the bangs. Yeah. Normally my tradition is V for Vendetta. What, you like to dress up, or...? No, as in watch V for Vendetta, because it's set on bonfire night. Oh, yeah. Just random trivia into my bonfire night traditions. But more importantly... It's Powerful Nonsense time. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, indeed, and we have got a great one for you today. I know we say that all the time. That's because they're all great. Exactly. Uh, But seriously, this is mind-blowing stuff, quite literally. Quite literally mind-blowing. That was off the cuff. I thank you. Here all week. (laughs) (laughs) But we have an interview for you today. Our first doctor. Oh, we didn't even mention that to him. Well, now he knows. Well, now he knows, listening in, Dr. Jack Lewis... You are the first Doctor on Powerful Nonsense. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Take a bow. Bow. Obviously, that insert nobody bow. can see it because A, you're not here, and B, it's an audio show. So why did you bother? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Great guy. Yeah. We spoke a lot about um, like whether, whether people actually wired for entrepreneurship. So he's a neuroscientist, so he was telling us a lot about how our brains actually work and how little actually a lot of us know about how they work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was, <laughs> I've said it already, I can't really say mind-blowing again, but it really, it was eye-opening, I think. And, and the fact that knowing that sort of stuff can have such a drastic effect, as he talks about as well at one point. We go into all sorts of stuff including there's so many subjects virtual reality and Luke Skywalker getting his hand cut off which always goes down well with me so. uh, well now we've just lost a whole load of viewers thanks for that Wayne <laughs> <sighs> well if you don't like viewers Star Wars listeners. or virtual reality or the concepts of that well bleh. then you come to the wrong place <laughs> <laughs> no but it is very very cool interview um, I think you're going to love it I did yeah, it was really good fun. He's a he's a really good guy, and I think like when you kind of speak to a doctor, you think it's going to be very sort of like serious and clinical. But actually, mm-hmm. Doctor Jack's like a proper nice guy, down to earth, and he really just wants to get out of all this neuroscientist kind of research and actually help other people to understand it a bit better. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a good few things in here as well, kind of action steps that you can take over various things. So just keep an eye an eye out, an ear open, an ear open, an ear keep out, keep an ear out, keep your ears to the ground. No, because then you can't hear. <sighs> listen in. Listen, <laughs> listen. Anyway, just just pay attention. And Enjoy the episode. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back at the end. Here it is, Doctor Jack Lewis. Okay, so um, welcome to the Powerful Nonsense Podcast, Doctor Jack. Uh, could you introduce yourself better than I did and tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure, I'm um, I'm Jack. I'm a neuroscientist, uh, and I do number of different things. I do quite a lot of broadcast. I wrote a book called Sort Your Brain Out because there's no such thing as a, as a, as a user guide to the brain. So me and my co-author thought we'd write one. Um, and I also do consultancy. And the, my consultancy firm is called Neuroform, which is short for Neuroscience Informed Consulting. 
So it's not neuromarketing. I don't stick electrodes on anyone's brains. I do, I do sometimes, but I try and avoid it wherever possible. I just, there's this huge corpus of knowledge in the neuroscience literature. And I draw on that for inspiration to help my clients who are usually in the worlds of PR or market research or advertising and just help them build a strategy that cuts through all of the clutter um, and, and, you know, make something that's brain-based. Every single consumer has a brain. And if you know a little bit more about how those brains work, you're going to know how to communicate with those brains in an influential way. Um, so, yeah, there's a little bit of helping businesses reach their audience better. And there's a lot of helping the individual get more out of their own brain by understanding how it does all the amazing things they do. Can you actually sort your brain out? Is there a, is there a perfect brain? There, you can... Well, that's two questions in one. That's cheating. <laughs> uh, yes, everyone can sort their brain out because relatively, anyone can, everyone can be getting a little bit more out of it than they do already, not really knowing how it works and kind of taking it for granted. Is there such a thing as a perfect brain? Depends on your definition of perfect. Good answer. So um, obviously today we want to talk about entrepreneurship and we want to wonder, we want to ask you and find out whether entrepreneurs actually wired differently and, and whether, whether neuroscience can explain why people become entrepreneurs and why they're more maybe pulled towards that sort of, that sort of a career option really. Interesting question. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg. We know that the entrepreneurial type of person has more dopamine receptors in their brain, but whether they always always had more dopamine receptors or whether it was as a result of lots of entrepreneurial activities is an as yet unanswered question. Um, the reason dopamine is, is important and relevant is because the reward pathways of the brain, are the, are the, they run on dopamine basically. And these brain areas, the ventral tegmental area in, in the midbrain, VTA for short, um, and in the ventral striatum part called the nucleus accumbens, these parts of the brain light up anytime you feel pleasure, right? But they also light up anytime you anticipate pleasure in the future. So if you've got a choice of three options, your brain has to evaluate which of these, these three options is the most attractive, which is the most valuable to me, the individual. And basically, the more those brain areas light up in response to considering option A over option B over option C, whichever one is kind of winner takes all, whichever one lights up the most is the one that you will opt for because your perception of its value is higher than all the others. Now there's another brain area called the insula, and that area is involved in, let's say you're looking at three items in a shop and then you turn the, the label over and see the price. So there's always sort of a, a, a sort of risk-benefit analysis going on. The benefit is analyzing the reward pathways, but then one aspect of risk is like, how much money am I gonna have to part with to get this and how much pain am I gonna have to endure? And the insula is the part of the brain that registers those kind of feelings. Um, it also does things like feeling nauseous, feeling disgusted by something. If you see like a body hacked up, uh, you know, the disgust is registered in the insula. But also that sort of, that discomfort when you see that something's really expensive. And basically you have this sort of battle between these two key brain areas. And so long as the insula stays low in terms of its response, and the reward pathway response is high to that given choice, then you'll go for it. But to complicate it even <laughs> further, and this is when it becomes specifically relevant to entrepreneurs, there is a certain degree of pleasure to be had from just contemplating a risky choice. You know, like gambling is exciting. Would you rather have a quid or would you rather have a scratch card that's worth a quid but could get you £10,000, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where the entrepreneur comes in. The entrepreneur is different from the average punter who goes for the promise 
of £10,000, despite the fact it's so statistically unlikely that you will actually gain that top prize. Mm -hmm. They do it because it's, but, but until you scratch it off, there's a certain hedonic value, there's a certain pleasure involved with rolling a dice, with you know, putting a bet on a casino or on a horse or on a dog. And, and, and there's something which is really enjoyable about will I, won't I win the big prize? Right, and, and a lot of people, the non-entrepreneurial types, or, or at least the poor entrepreneurs, would be the ones who just go for the gamble, just because it's exciting, and then the rational parts of their brain don't kick in and go, yeah, but statistically, forget the emotional excitement, statistically, I'm so unlikely to benefit from this overall, given that choice between a quid or a scratch card, take the quid, so then you can actually buy something you need with it. Is this sort of why? Um, is that sort of why people, especially entrepreneurs, get into these sort of pyramid schemes sometimes, and they kind of get pulled in by it? They think, okay, the quick wins come in. Exactly. Well, the pyramid scheme is like, so long as it keeps on going, you're going to make money, but whoever's at the bottom of the pyramid is going to end up losing lots. So the pyramid scheme thing, like you know, forget moral consideration, just sort of financial consideration. If you believe that it will continue for another five, ten years then eventually you'll make some money, but then inject some morality. Is it nice for all those people at the top of the pyramid to make huge amounts of money when you know that a much, much larger number of people are going to be screwed over? So, it, you know, it's, 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 it is the promise of a, a, big, a big pay packet at the end of the day, and some people are more unscrupulous than others. Some won't care that others are going to have to suffer if you're going to gain. But, but how much of it do you think is about the money, though? Especially for entrepreneurs, a lot of entrepreneurs say, like, oh, find your why or follow your heart. It, I mean, is it that heavily towards? I mean, I I would say I'm not so interested in the sort of the money is obviously a byproduct of your actions, but do you kind of think that there's other things to it in terms of identity as a person going for trying to build something? It's a really good question. I believe that the people who do the best in life, whether or not that's measured by financial gain, are the ones who are driven by something other than money. So I think if you're always looking at the money, always looking at the finances, then when your business inevitably hits hard times and you do the maths, then sometimes you'll bail out just at the point where an upturn is going to come. Because just, you know, my own entrepreneur activities, if I was driven by money, I would have given up long ago. But because I was driven for, by, by a cause greater than that, I was driven by a desire to share all this cool stuff I've, I've learned about the brain over the last 18 years that can actually have a positive impact on anyone's brain, whether they're a kid or, 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 or an elderly person. And just understanding how your brain works is tremendously empowering. Because, you know, for instance, you can teach an old dog new tricks. It's a load of rubbish that you can't teach old people new things. Uh, they are a little bit more stuck in their ways, but anything you do regularly, intensively, over long periods of time will physically change your brain as well as changing your abilities, right? So wanting to get that kind of message out to the, to the broadest number of people, it meant that the years I spent just above the breadline, more or less, didn't bother me because I was my own boss, and that was worth an awful lot, having had some terrible bosses over the years. And I was self-actualized. I was doing something I really believed in, that I was really driven by. And, and, and you know, I, I'd, I'd stress to my friends and my family and say, look, everyone around me is sort of accelerating past me financially. And they're like, chill. If you really believe, you become an expert at something, if you really believe in what you're doing, the money will come and find you. You don't have to go and find the money. And, you know, I'm 36 now, and I've been waiting for this to happen since I finished my PhD when I was 25. 
And it's only just starting to happen now, 10 years later. Only now do I feel like I, I don't have to think, wow, how am I going to make some money next month? Mm. I've spent the last 10 years of my life not having a clue how I was going to pay my rent next month. And now I've got bookings, that's not just next month, but the month after and the month after. And I even know how I'm going to get some money in March. So if I, if I was driven by money, I'd have gone, I almost did. I almost went back to being a headhunter because my, my then missus was breaking my balls about how skint I was the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the last minute she said, if you take this job, which will give you secure income, I will dump you immediately because that's not why I'm with you. Oh, I'm wow. with you because you're entrepreneurial. Uh -huh. So basically I was stuck between a rock and a hard place. Being skint wasn't good enough for her, but then guaranteeing income wasn't good for her either. <laughs> so anyway, we're not together, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> But um, how much of um, of this is like, well, mate, I know you say, okay, you're entrepreneurial, but mm. how much is like being sort of um, drawn in by money or drawn in by the security? How much of that is just programmed from, say, our education, from birth, mm -hmm. from our parents? Mm -hmm. It's a good point because one thing I've learned is that collaboration is, is absolutely key. No man is an island. I, for, for a long time, I did it all on my Jacks Jones. But... Um, I've got the question. <laughs> so it was, um, it's, it was more of a sort of, is it something that we've been trained to be more entrepreneurial in terms of the neuroscience things, or is it something that's maybe genetic and we're actually in that position from birth, perhaps, or is it, is it something that we've been trained to do? So, like, are people, are people trying to? Put it this way: this okay. whole over-responsiveness to dopamine stuff, right? When you're a teenager, when you go through adolescence, that happens you get more dopamine re receptors, all of us as kids. And that's why we, as teenagers, tend to sort of, oh, I hate you, mom, you're such a bit, you know, like we, we, we lash out at the world around us. We hate teachers, we hate the police, you know, not everyone, but they're on average, we tend to be that little bit more um, in favor of risky decisions. And a lot of people think, oh, you know, what's the matter with teenagers? They're nutcases. But the whole point is, it's adaptive. It's evolutionarily designed to help us leave the comfort of, of our family and our home and strike out yeah. alone. So that entrepreneurial spirit in my mind is an extension of what happens naturally in all of our brains, men and women, when we go through adolescence. It makes us hunger for risk. It makes us want to play chicken <laughs> with, with life. Um, but but then isn't there like isn't there like a massive sort of um, balance there where actually in the in the space of our lives where we're actually meant to be the most risk taking most sort of um, just trying new things isn't it the part of our life where actually the system and the the way the education works actually trying to put us into a box and really sort of categorize us and actually restrain that sort of that way of thinking you start having to get your GCSEs etc. Mm -hmm. No, listen, let's let's do the education question a bit, but an I just want to answer your earlier question because we're getting to the point where I can answer it now. Risky, risky behaviors are adaptive. But you were saying, is, are we born with this entrepreneurial spirit or do we learn it? So we all go through this adaptation where, where we're hungrier for risk, but then it, it, I believe it really depends on our experiences during adolescence. When we take those risks, do we live to regret it or do we live to think, wow, I'm really glad I took that risk. I was absolutely crapping my pants when I went to knock on that door to ask that big favor. But did it go well or badly? And I think that it's those rolls of the dice. If you think about it, I remember approaching girls when I was a teenager. I was rubbish because I was so nervous, right, that I didn't, I didn't make a good impression of myself. You know, that I, I came across as exactly what I was, <laughs> a nervous wreck. <laughs> <laughs> and if I just approached that same girl 
at the bus are asking for directions or asking, you know, for, for some advice or something, you know, like, do you know how I can get to here? It would have been fine because I, because I wasn't in the brain state of trying to chirp her. Do you know what I mean? Um, so it's that's the same thing. Sometimes we can be so nervous when we go to ask that big question that, that the person like just wants to get away from us. And and it's awful to think that you know if it goes badly the first time, then the next time you think to go and do that, you're even more reluctant. You're even more nervous. But if that first time goes well, if that person who, who's sort of instrumental to your development is surprisingly helpful and really points you in the right direction, then the next time you think, should I, shouldn't I ask for advice from someone scarily senior to me? You do it, you don't even think twice because it worked really well in the past. So I think people can recover from these knocks because when you go from that sort of uncertainty of adolescence and you go into your early 20s and, and, and 30s and feel more and more confident in your own abilities, you can, if you set your goals right, small incremental goals, you can build your confidence. You can feel like you do deserve to speak to these people, that your voice should be heard. Um, and then, you know, it can accelerate. Your self-development can accelerate. Uh, but some people are just so precocious that even when they do get a knockback, they don't give a monkeys. So, mm -hmm. so, that, so that, that was what I was like academically. I would pursue this neuroscience stuff and write crazy essays about like how you, you know when Luke Skywalker gets his arm cut off with a, with a lightsaber mm -hmm. and then they plug a robotic one so his brain is controlling a robotic arm. I genuinely wrote an essay during my undergraduate neuroscience degree at Nottingham about this. And all my colleagues, all my peers were like, you're crazy, there's so much weight on this particular module, don't do it, you're taking a huge risk. But I'm like, if I do it on this topic, I really care about the answer to this, I think it's amazing. I can't tell you how happy I am now, in the last, this year, there's been loads of stuff coming out where not only are brains controlling the prosthetic limbs, but the, 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 there's touch sensation from the prosthetic limb going back into the brain, so wow. they can actually touch, they can feel touch with that process. Anyway, the point is, I took a huge risk, I got 84%. They'd never ever given a, a, an essay score, in my degree, above 79% ever before in the history of that degree. So the point is, I was happy taking gambles academically, because I was really passionate, I knew I'd study it really hard, I'd learn everything it was to know, I'd write a really good essay, I'd put in the extra time to make it good. Also, I'd read the marking criteria, and I knew that if I did everything right, and did something that they'd never ever seen before, they had to give me a high mark. Mm -hmm. So, you can be lacking in confidence with girls in your adolescence, but hugely confident and, and happy to take risks with other things where you feel really on top of it. Um, and yeah, and, and so even if you've had some bad experiences of your first entrepreneurial activities, you can just learn from your mistakes. Everything is about learning from your mistakes. You know when they say, it's not about failing, it's about failing fast and learning from it and getting back on it. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. I was chatting with my housemate the other day. I used to run a drum and bass night in Nottingham, and I made a huge mistake. You know, like if you burn bridges with people, if you, if you shout at someone, then they never want to work with you again. You only get one chance. Mm -hmm. I did that with the manager of The Bomb, this club up in Nottingham, and he was such an arsehole. He was always like, phoning, oh, I'm not happy about this, I'm not happy about that. For two and a half, three years, he gave us a hard time. And then he failed us, and I picked up the phone and said, oh, I'm not happy about this, I'm not happy about that. And he was like, I'm dropping you, look. <laughs> Only if he is not a part of it, or if he takes a back seat rather than being front line, will I work with you again. And so I learned that lesson when it didn't matter. I'd done it for two or three years. I'd learned everything there was entrepreneurial from that particular enterprise. But it meant that when I'd been tempted to say the same thing to people in the world of telly, you can be so frustrated. To my co-presenter of my podcast, Geek Sheet Weird Science, who yesterday shifted the recording from 6 o'clock to 10 in the morning 
to four o'clock. So I was in Soho all bloody day for no reason, just because of miscommunication. And mm-hmm. I bit my tongue and I didn't have a go at her because she, the, the pluses that she offers my life hugely outweigh those small frustrating emotional moments where you're running low on sugar, you've been messed about for the umpteenth time, but you've got to take a step back and think, how, what do I hope to gain by being angry? If you're angry, just bite your tongue, eat a muffin, write, write the draft email, angry email, and come back to it the next day. Mm-hmm. That's the best advice I was ever given. When you read it the next day, you think, I can't believe I was going to send that. You think to yourself, I'm such a fool to think that would achieve anything other than burning bridges. Mm-hmm. And do you think um, what you were talking about with regard to like the risk-taking and the, the almost the precociousness like with your essay for example do you think that kind of um, explains the famous Steve Jobs reality distortion field I don't know it's so famous I've never heard of it oh right okay Um, so basically the idea is that um, Steve Jobs would walk into a scenario and he'd essentially tell people that the impossible was possible Um, and that essentially that the rules didn't apply to him Um, and many claim that that is really the key to his success was the fact that he was so almost outrageous with this idea of he could do what he wanted and the rules didn't apply yeah so like confident in his vision in a way so like just know where those visions and that confidence came from he's quoted as saying if if there was there was three things that were absolutely instrumental in him realizing all of his ambitions and doing the impossible over and over again one of them was taking lsd now i'm not promoting taking of LSD but it's an interesting point that the whole that the, the mechanism of, of acid of hallucinogens of psychedelics is to kind of break down the normal barriers between different parts of your brain if you kind of senses fuse together and your thoughts free will and feel like you're a part of the cosmos mm-hmm. and I think it's interesting that he was obviously a brilliant man anyway but then on top of that he, he sort of chemically induced a state where he was no longer constrained by self-limiting beliefs. Mm-hmm. Now, he didn't have many self-limiting beliefs to begin with, right? <laughs> but then, now this is a good way to, I, I don't know why I keep answering the question before each time you ask me. <laughs> but this is where the schooling comes into it, right? He, when we are at school, school was developed to, you know, learning by rote, copying off the board, learning it for exams, um, all, the, all of this information, you know, even the information that was selected in the first place, was all based on the needs of the, of the early 20th century, you know, like industrial revolution, and now there's all of these sort of roles that people need to fulfill in terms of, sort of moving those goods around the world and, and, you know, keeping checks and balances on spreadsheets and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of people, say, in the, in the 70s and 80s, really benefited from uh, that style of education because those skills came in and extremely useful when there was such a thing as a job for life. Mm-hmm. But there's no such thing as a job for life now. And what, you know, the, the things that my colleagues, I went to university 97 to 2001, and half of my friends are doing very well in careers that didn't even exist when we were at university. So the breakneck pace of technology means that we have to be more reactive. There is no such thing as a job for life. People will go through two or three or four different careers over their lifetime. Because, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit is, 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 is kind of, if you want to survive, you need to have multiple options. What better way than being entrepreneurial in your approach of developing different talents and skills? You know, I, I myself may have sort of a PhD in neuroscience, but I spent an awful lot of time 
last year learning to use Final Cut Pro so I could edit my own stuff instead of always being hold, beholden to another. I spent much of the beginning of this year learning to use, um, uh, what's it called, Cinema 4D. Uh, so I could do motion graphics for that film you and I did together, Jen. Because I couldn't afford to pay someone else to do it, right? I don't have vast sums. You need to learn the new skills yourself if you have time. You only have time if you're an entrepreneur. If you're working for someone nine to five, Monday to Friday, you've got very little spare time. Well, you've got the whole weekend, but a lot of people want to relax over that time. So, yeah, the entrepreneurial spirit future-proofs yourself because if you don't have multiple revenue streams, then when inevitably one or two of them get cut off for reasons beyond your control, at least you've got four or five others. That's what I've learned over the last five years. But how do you sort of... (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was talking about we got into LSD, didn't we? But yeah, Yeah. just sort of that, um, I think it was about the um, reality distortion field and obviously having that confidence that such in your vision that other people can see it too and they start to follow it, whether that's... Yeah. I don't know. No, no, absolutely. So, that, no, thank you for reminding me what the. Now I'll, now I'll answer your current question. <laughs> With all of that in the background, um, what forms are reality? Other people. But then when you're at school, the other people around you are other pupils, other teachers. So the reality is formed by the institution, if you like. And I still think school has its place. They should maybe be a bit more uh, flexible, creative with the curriculum. But I think having that sort of formality of getting up every day early in the morning, getting into school for registration. You know, you do need to learn through experience, and there's no better way than trial and error, to, you know, turn up places on time. That's just the basic requisite of doing any kind of business. If you, if you make a meeting, you damn well show some respect by turning up on time, ideally 10, 15 minutes before, so that you can anticipate those inevitable occasional um, delays, right? So you do need some structure. But then that does create a reality. The reality is created by the opinions of the teachers, the books that are on the syllabus, all that kind of stuff. But then you can supplement that with experience outside. And I think a lot of people in school these days, their reality is also uh, formed by what they see, what they watch on YouTube. You know, the great world of the internet, doing courses. You know, I'm sure there are GCSE A-level students out there doing university-level uh, MOOCs, you know, massively open online courses to learn about whatever they want because you just have to... Just have to fill in a few details and get access to the best lecturers in the world, right? Everyone can supplement their education with whatever they want. So there's no point in always pointing the finger at the, the, the Department of Education because there's huge global resources that you can choose. We have the choice now where we didn't before. Anyway, point is you come out of that. So what, what's your reality formed by? The whole purpose of the brain, really and truly, is to create models, working models of how the world works. And then anytime you get a, a surprise, the reward pathways wake up, light up. If it's a positive surprise, it updates the model so that it can anticipate those unexpected rewards better next time. Put, put yourself in the way of, of these unexpected rewards so that they're expected. You, you can adopt that into your model. If you get a nasty surprise, if you sort of aren't paying attention, looking at your smartphone when you cross the road on a particular corner and you nearly get run over, you update your model of how the world works to be a little bit more vigilant in that particular part of the territory you go through every day. So our models are constantly updating according to our experience. And really the brain, if everything happens according to expectation, the brain doesn't really have much to do. It's predominantly wired up to send uh, prediction errors. It feeds back only where things went wrong, where things went against expectation. That's when the brain needs to update itself and send, send information back. 
if everything runs smoothly, the brain's pretty quiet. <laughs> but is, isn't that not what nine to five is, though? Once you've got consistency in your day, you're getting your money in, you're getting, you're paying your bills, you're eating the same foods, you're... Yeah. Does, does the brain not really want growth? Does it want to stay consistent throughout? And yeah, it is, so is, is the entrepreneur going against that because he's constantly trying to break the, the general, the programming, really? Good questions, boys. Good questions. <laughs> so, um, the brain is capable of adapting constantly throughout life to any, any given set of circumstances, any given environment, whether it's real or virtual, uh, any given set of pressures, if you think of like Holocaust victims, what they went through, um, you know, they, they can come out of it unbelievably. They can come out of it functioning, scarred, but functioning extremely well, uh, you know, some of them. And I have a friend that was re- recently diagnosed with, with leukemia, you know, a huge wake-up call for a man with two kids. But these huge life events can make you sit up and take notes and actually appreciate what you've got. Because in the meantime, unless something major happens to us to jolt us out of our sort of reverie, out of our uh, autopilot, we, we tend to function, you know, we, we adopt our routines because routine is comforting. Anytime there's new stuff happening, although it's exciting, attached to that risk is a sense of anxiety. We don't like them, but we love uncertainty and we hate it. We like it when it's within certain predictable bounds, but complete uncertainty is terrifying. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so it's about finding that line between, like there are a lot of people who, who, do, who don't learn that there is a certain amount of risk, certain amount of uncertainty is something to love, is something that can really enrich your life. Then they crave comfort and, and routine and they stay away from the unknown. But then that stifles their self-development. A brain will only change its abilities if you do something regularly, intensively, and over a long period of time. And by intensively, I mean... How challenging is it? If it's too easy, it's boring and you won't bother doing it anymore. If it's too hard, it's futile and you won't bother doing it anymore. But it's that Goldilocks zone that's just right. It's, it's sort of rewardingly challenging. Candy Crush is, is a good example. That, that game is designed to be rewardingly challenging and then it, it sets the difficulty level so that you, the individual, whoever you are, finds it rewardingly challenging, right? And so if you can get people doing that kind of stuff, and then they'll do it regularly and over long periods of time and their brain will change. But if someone has learned never to go out of their comfort zone, then they will never find, they will never push themselves to the point where they find that, you know, being a little bit uncomfortable, you get so much more out of yourself and it's so much more satisfying. You know what I mean? It's, it's when the way that life experience impinges upon, okay, I've got half an hour to kill, what am I going to do? Some people will do something, set, set piece, routine. Stay away from anxiety because it's horrible. Others are like, well, I'm bored just sitting around here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out and see what's out there. And then when they walk past uh, an open door with a load of people inside, someone beckoning them in to a gallery or a function or I don't know what it would be. You know, do you go in the, into the unknown or do you walk past and talk yourself out of it? And there are fundamental mindsets shaped by childhood experiences, shaped by attitudes of parents and peers and teachers, which can either lead you to be risk-seeking or risk-averse. Um, but then whatever you are can change if you incentivize yourself to push yourself gently out of your comfort zone on a regular basis. Get in the habit of that, you'll, you'll have changed fundamentally in a year or two. 
Because it's funny. I mean, I started when I when I met you. I was working at V Inspired, and I started listening to podcasts, start reading about all these people being very entrepreneurial, and then start reading books on entrepreneurialism. And then suddenly, my identity started changing. And like you say, with that sort of Goldilocks, you start start to see that actually this is possible. So what is happening in the brain while you're kind of watching your idols succeed? You're seeing businessmen. You're reading books. You're listening to podcasts. What is actually doing to the brain to kind of help you to become more entrepreneurial? It's changing your model. Your internal model of how the world works, it's, it's opening your eyes to other possibilities. Those that your education, your life experiences and uh, stuff that you've seen on, on television or in the media have exposed you to thus far. When there's so much information overload out there, once you start focusing on the channels that are inspiring, that tell stories which, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of channels, uh, media channels that can offer false hope you know, like those pyramid scheme things. Like how to how to lose like three stone of belly fat in just one day. You know, there's all sorts of false promise out there, but there's also lots of genuinely useful stuff. And if you, we all have the choice, as I said earlier, over what we watch, over what we expose ourselves to. And if you choose well and find stuff which uh, inspires you, but it, in a way where you, it can actually deliver on what it's promising, this is where I was. This is where I am now. And, and it's got that ring of truth to it. Not like I became a millionaire in a week. That's clearly bullshit and you should stay away from <laughs> Um But then, you know, there's a lot of people out there who fall for it. Otherwise, those kind of pop-up ads on the internet wouldn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. It's a pure numbers game. Like one in a hundred people is sucker enough to click on that. Um, and people make money out of it. And, you know, they're the, those mo morally unscrupulous people we were talking about earlier. But the rest of us, we can physically change our brains by exposing ourselves regularly, intensively and over long periods of time to the right kind of materials. You spoke earlier about um, that email that you was potentially going to send to your to your friend being angry. And I mean, we, we like to talk a lot about mindfulness on this um, podcast as well. We say it's about mindfulness. How important is it and how do people start becoming more mindful, being aware that, okay, I'm stuck in this regular routine. There is no anxiety producing aspects of my life. How does somebody get to the point where that, that, is, that becomes part of their awareness? Mm. So like mindfulness is clinically proven to reduce stress. <laughs> so if you're not stressed, don't do it. <laughs> no, if you're not stressed, you can use mindfulness in a different way. So when Adrian Webster, my co-author, and I go and do our Sort Your Brain Out live talks, we, we sort of converted the book into a, a live bubble act. We, taught, we sort of sprinkled these little brain-informed uh, pieces of guidance around the clock. So we say, you know, wake up at 4 a.m., can't get back to sleep again, what do you do? And then we kind of go through how sleep is incredibly important for your brain. It's when the brain does all its maintenance and running repairs. Like, can you imagine trying to repair a busy road, like the Marlborough Road or something, um, during the daytime, when it's constantly got traffic streaming up and down? No, you do it at night when the road's clear. That's when you do your heavy road works. It's the same with the brain. But then, you know, seven in the morning, you wake up, what's the first thing you do? Well, you're dehydrated, so drink a glass of water. If you've been breathing all night, you've been blowing off water vapor, your brain can't work properly if it's not properly hydrated. It's 73% water. But then we get through to 9 o'clock, and this is where we drop in this mindfulness meditation thing. Um, the word for meditation in Tibetan is gom, G-O-M. So Adrian has his little spiel about every morning, 9 o'clock, I do gom time. He does this 7-11 breathing thing. You breathe in for 7 seconds, you breathe out for 11 seconds. And then I step in and explain it's because you're taking in the oxygen on the 7 seconds, but then you're blowing off the carbon dioxide for longer. 
because the carbon dioxide is a waste material of metabolism that builds up and sort of clogs your brain up, but it makes you feel stressed. If you've got, if you're, if you're stressed, you breathe shallow. If you breathe shallow, you've got too much carbon dioxide knocking around in you. It makes you stressed. But anyway, so he gets people in the audience to do this 7-Eleven breathing. We could do it now if you want. I'm only kidding. Um, <laughs> and um, and, it's, and then he says, okay, so now that you're, you're in this regime, in and out, in and out, okay, now picture your goals. And, and that's the bit. That's where you think, what do I want to change? What do I want to do? Knowing that anything you do regularly, intensely over long periods of time, have I forgotten something that I committed to doing a week or a month ago? And just because life's so busy, I've forgotten that this is my priority. And then you just plant that little seed in your mind. Today, now when can I fit this in? I've got a meeting here and there and I've got to do that bit of work. So maybe I could get this in at four o'clock. But you commit at nine in the morning to, to, do, to spending half an hour playing the guitar, let's say, at four to 4.30. And then if you get your half hour in every day, the part of your brain that controls finger movements will slowly but surely lay down new connections, which gives you finer motor control, which means you can hit those notes on a tricky piece of music. But only if you keep it up every day will it make the requisite changes to make you better at that skill. And only if you set your goal at the beginning of a busy day, it doesn't have to be nine o'clock, whenever you sit down to start work is basically what we mean. Um, uh, yeah, if you, by, by investing five minutes into gone time to set out your goals so they're small, achievable, like baby steps towards the overall massive success that you're aiming for, then that's how you can stay on target. But then, obviously, that's kind of talking a little bit about habit formation is having that. A lot of people struggle to kind of have that further vision to do that consistently over time because, obviously, like you say, it took 10 years before you got to this stage. Like, a lot of people aren't wired to wait that long for the reward. No, no, no. But if I'd known, right, if I'd known it would take me 10 years, I never would have set out to do it in the first place. I almost didn't do a PhD uh, but because I thought I'd have to do a master's first. And it was because I did a, a year, a sandwich year in industry. I worked as a sort of you know, neuroscience researcher and I went to a party with a bunch of postdocs so people who've got their PhDs and were now in the workplace and they're going so are you going to do a PhD I was like no way man I'm not going to spend a year doing a master's and three years doing a PhD that'll take forever and he was like what are you talking about you don't have to if you get a good undergraduate degree you can just go straight to a PhD so long as your supervisor will take you on I completely changed it so I wasn't willing to study for an additional four years, but I was willing to, to study for an additional three. Do you think I really would have embarked on this whole process if I'd known it would take me 10 years to not be skimmed? <laughs> no, <laughs> but the whole point is you just don't, I think, and I don't know what entrepreneurs would say about this, but I think too much milestone, milestone setting is fine, but being too inflexible in when each of those milestones should be met is something which I think is great for the financial investors and shit for the individual. Because like, if, if you're trying to tackle something really that's never been done before and it's really difficult to achieve, then there's going to be huge amounts of planning fallacy. There's going to be huge amounts of you think this will take a year and it actually ends up taking three or four. Right? If in the meantime your children are starving, then go and get a proper job. <laughs> but if, if you're managing to keep mouths fed but maybe don't have the luxuries, then that's fine because the luxuries can wait if, you're, if the project you're on is more important. And, and it's interesting to think of the difference between financial and social entrepreneurialism because sometimes when it's a social goal, the finances don't matter to them. They live in poverty so long as they're achieving that overall goal, right? And I think that's fascinating. And, and it's really interesting in terms of the relevance to a really fascinating neuroscience experiment where they got people to 
um, do do some work in the scanner, and then they were either rewarded with sort of social praise, like everyone in the sort of community would say thanks so much for helping, um, or they were rewarded with money. And if someone was rewarded with uh, a stingy amount of money, the reward pathways were really quiet, like like as in it, they were suppressed because they, it was a disappointingly small amount of money compared to what they're expecting, but any amount of social recognition caused a huge response in the reward pathway because we're so hugely motivated by social status. Um, another experiment, why is it that once people have made, you know, financial entrepreneurs, they've made all that money, they've got huge amounts of money, there's no more excitement to be had there. Why do they always run these charity pools, charity this, charity that, charity events? Because being seen to be charitable raises your social status. And that is the most intoxifying motivator to a human being, to have people think well of you. So much more motivating than money to most people. Um, so yeah, you get, you get social entrepreneurs who eventually do so well at achieving their goals that they get money as a side effect. And then you get financial, entre financial entrepreneurs who gain so much money that they, they no longer really gain any pleasure from it. Because if you've got 500 million, how much pleasure does 20 million bring you, right? you then start finding ways to make yourself feel happy. It's always sort of benevolence and, mm -hmm. and social, socially benefit, pro-social behaviors, but particularly those that are in the public eye. Some people give philanthropically secretly, but, but perhaps that's because they're embarrassed about how much money they have and they don't want to draw attention to themselves. A lot of people, when they do benevolent things, they want that building named after them. Why? Because it's everyone knowing that without you, Bob Franklin or whatever, that school would never have been built. That library, that you know, hospital would never have been built. So I think tapping into that, if, if, if I asked you two to pick up litter and I gave one of you like a poor financial reward and the other one I said, look, will you, will you just do it? Like just to be pro-social, just because I, I get everyone to pick up a little thing. Every day I ask someone to give me 20 minutes of their time. The one who just did out of the goodness of their heart would get so much more satisfaction. Well, it's, it's, it's funny you say that because I remember when I actually volunteered to help you with your video and at the end you tried to give me money and I was like, if I was to take that money, I would have felt a whole lot worse and I felt so good knowing that I'd done something for you for free totally and like yeah. I just did it because I wanted to help you. Yeah. And so if, you, if I had taken the 20 quid that you offered me, it would have made me feel bad because I felt no, no, then but it's... Also, but this is the important thing. This is why social contract, unspoken social contracts between humans is so important I have, in the last eight weeks, I've done eight months worth of work. I have never been so busy. It's, I'm trying to buy a flat, I'm trying to do all sorts of things, it's going mental for me. And when you're thinking to you with 20 bullet points of things you wanted to discuss in a one hour podcast, who does a one hour podcast <laughs> matter? I, I was literally on the verge of going, you know what, no, I just can't, I'm, I'm maxed out here. And then I thought, this is Jen, a man who gave me so much of his time for free and refused payment. And so I did something for you, the individual, Jem, how do I pronounce your name? Yildiz. <laughs> that I would never have done for some random person who came in saying, hey, would you like to come and speak on my podcast? No way. My own podcast never run for longer than 50 minutes. This is madness. <laughs> this is Sparta. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that is, that is uh, the difference as well, I think, between um, kind of going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, like the sort of industrial age versus this new age that we're kind of going through, where there is, like I think a few people have said, the, the new word on the block is not competition, it's collaboration. And mm. I think we're seeing a shift 
um, in things because people have actually realised that it's not actually all that much money out there for just working hard. And actually now, if we can build this social and this networking and all of that sort of stuff, we can we can gain so much more from it. Yeah, and and on and on in that regard, technology is really changing everything, and and it's just get it's accelerating even more. So, Jim, you might remember we we interviewed one guy called Mel Slater. I told him a story, um, and, it, and you can actually see the, the live interview, not the live interview, the interview up on my YouTube channel, Dr. Jack Lewis on YouTube. But I, I said, you know, when I was a kid, I used to go car washing for, for, you know, charge a couple of quid here and there, and me and my friend would go straight down to the arcade and just blow it all on all sorts of arcade video games because it was so much better an experience than the, than the rubbishy ZX Spectrum 128k like you know cassette loaded games we had at home <laughs> because it was much better um, the arcade thrived you know the, you know it wasn't just an arcade in the video shop but there were whole arcades and that's kind of died a death in, in recent times and so I was asking Mel Slater professor of virtual realities th- these virtual reality goggles you know where you can get in actually inside the world where you look up you see the sky you look down you see your feet you know that or your avatar's feet once this you know now that the games are getting really good in these VR worlds, do you think the arcade will come back? And he was like, no. I was like, oh, well, that's really disappointing. But because <laughs> because it's, these things are now so affordable, everyone can have them in their living room, starting now, right? Mm-hmm. And if you read a book like Ready Player One, I would highly recommend Ready Player One. It's a book of fiction, science fiction, by a guy called Nathan Klein, C-L-I-N-E. Um, <clears throat> and it's a sort of dystopian future where and I think quite a realistic one, where we've ravaged the earth, where everyone lives in poverty, but everyone's plugged into these VR goggles. They work in a world of VR, they play in a world of VR, and you know, forget kids playing World of Warcraft for sort of 12 hours straight. I've, have you ever been in one of these VR virtual environments? No. no. I, I, I work quite a lot at the British Film Institute, and, um, and there was a, a big sort of computer gaming uh, what's it called then like meeting there are people coming together to show their latest games and I had a go in this one it's called Sandman brilliant game you're in a canoe and you use a sort of uh, Sony Playstation handheld uh, controller and you click the right button you paddle on the right side of the canoe click the left button left side of the canoe but the way it was rendered, the art in this world was just so beautiful. The sound art was amazing, like the, the wind whistling through the forest. You look over at the forest on the edge of the lake and it was all sort of autumnal oranges and purple. It was, it was like a magical, well, it's called Sandman, right? So it's supposed to be like a dreamscape. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can navigate, like if, and if you, if, you get into, if you get wedged into between some rocks, you can back paddle and literally you look behind you and, and as if you were there in that environment, you can see behind you, you look down, you see your body, you look up, you see, and, and it was so calming, it was so meditative. And when I, because all of the delegates were watching a, a film, so when I went in, it was just me and the, and the programming geeks. But the guy was like, okay, he was whispering in my ear, he's like, okay, now go down there left, go left a bit, okay, can you see that little ravine? And I was like, oh my God, on the edge of the lake, you can go down this little stream. And you go down through the stream and you come, like, pick your way through some rocks, and then eventually you come to um, uh, a rapid, and you, the, the water's really churning, and so you've got no sense of movement. But because the visual and the auditory information, you know, when you turn your head to the right, all the sound comes in through your left ear. When you turn your head to the left, all the you know, so you really feel like you're there. As I was going down this rapid, even though there was no actual sense of movement other than the visual and auditory information, I was like, Wee! 
And then eventually I thought, shit, I've been in here for 15, 20 minutes. Maybe someone else has come into the room. I took the visor off. I took the headphones off. The room was jam-packed with people. And there was a, there was a queue of a dozen people behind me waiting to have a go. My point being, these VR worlds, which we're going to have in our bedrooms and our living rooms, are so good already that why, if, you're, if, if where you live is shit, would you ever want to spend time in the real world? And I think there's huge amounts of entrepreneurial possibility. Read that book, see what's coming, and prepare for the future. Because it's a future where we're going to have to, you know, really encourage people or strong arm people to get out into the real world. Because I think this virtual reality, immersive experience, is going to be so addictive, so intoxicating. But, but is that not just modern commercialism selling products? Is that not selling that reality already to them? When when someone buys a handbag, when someone buys a car, when someone buys this big house, is that all right? Are you going to get? Yeah, but they get drive that? that car through the real world to get from one real place to another. They they wear the handbag in public places because what's the point in having a handbag if people don't see it? My concern is that you know these virtual worlds you'll be able to have everything that you can't afford in the real life for 1% of the price if you buy a virtual version of it and when you look in a virtual mirror you will see your virtual avatar adorned with virtual sort of luxury goods and it will feel to your brain your simple stone age brain that you have those things those accoutrements of success. Isn't there like a benefit to that though? Because people not then, if it's an entrepreneur, can can get you get comfortable with risk taking. You can do risky things in your virtual world, which then can pull up into your. One hundred percent. Susan Greenfield, Professor Susan Greenfield, Oxford University, does my head in, because she bangs on and on about technology is bad. Technology mm-hmm. is bad for us, right? It's complete bullshit. Technology is neither good nor bad. It's how we use it, how we choose to use it. If you, if you consume technology and don't think about the effects it's having on, on your neuroplasticity, that you're changing your brain by engaging with it so intensely over so many, such a long period of time, then yeah, it's bad for you. But if you think about what it's doing to you and then make some informed choices, like you say, you could do a, a, a entrepreneurial risk strategy course where you you know, you, you do virtual stock exchange, you do virtual business interactions, you do virtual negotiations, um, and, and you, you develop the ability to improve your risk-taking abilities, as in, you don't go for the hugely risky, unlikely to deliver return options, but you get really good at finding that line where, yeah, it's risky, but I think we can pull this off. And, and just whilst we're on this topic, Mel Slater's work, the whole point of creating these virtual reality environments was to help people get over things like social phobia. So, so the, when I went, this was during my PhD, he was based in UCL, now he's in Barcelona. But I went into his virtual reality lab in UCL on Gower Street. And um, I put the thing on, the walk, you, you literally walk around in this environment. Um, and because it, it, it's got a tracker, it can tell where your head is and it can update the images accordingly. Um, and you walk into a bar and then there's a female avatar like, hi. How you doing over at the bar? Welcome, and and you interact with virtual people, and so he, again, this is on on the YouTube channel. He's saying that um, that it's really useful. It's not more effective than proper psychotherapy to help these people get over their social phobia, but the psychotherapists can achieve so much more in just one afternoon with that client, with that person, than they ever could in real life, mm-hmm. because they can run it again and again and again and my own experience of this I, I did a, a 
did a, an MTV series called Plain Jane, a couple of series, right? It's a makeover show. I was like, no way I'm going to do that. So, no, 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 your job would be explain to these young girls who are perfectly lovely but just don't know how to dress and aren't very confident. Explain to them how their brain works in such a way that you uh, improve their confidence. And then we'll get them dating boys. And then after doing it, sort of first boy, second boy, fifth boy, eventually their confidence will improve. And my God, it was amazing. It was truly, you know how they always go into telly for transformations? But these girls were really nervous shrinking violence. I gave them a little bit of insight into what's going on in their brain, what's going on in the boy's brain when they do it. And just by running that day with five different guys in the space of two hours, they, went, they became totally energized and on top of the game. And they were, you know, they went from being, oh, sorry, sorry that I exist to, you know, they had these these lads in, in the palm of their hands. It's and funny because have you, have you seen that um, Dove advert where they put the patch on the girls who are the same? They put this patch on oh, and then the, the whole patch. the beauty patch, and then all week these girls are getting chat, like get more confident throughout the week, and then the end of the week comes and they say, "Oh, actually, there's nothing in the patch. It was just a placebo." Yeah, brilliant. But that's it's, all of this boils down to belief. So my my shtick is to make people believe by helping them understand what's going on in their brain. But it could work with a sugar pill. It could work with a patch that, that is, is, you know, it's the, it's the belief as much as anything else that actually changes the way a person behaves. So that was the thing with these girls. They didn't change at all apart from being more confident. So when they went in uh, to talk to the guys, they were more sexy purely by virtue of having more confidence. They hadn't changed their clothes. They hadn't changed their appearance. But their entire body language and demeanor had fundamentally changed. And the guys responded well to them instead of badly. It was just like me when I was a bored, when I was a, a wreck, anxious mess approaching attractive girls when I was 15, 16. Um, you know, I was the same person a couple of years later. I just, I'd accumulated some positive experiences and I threw myself into those situations, not thinking I want to pull this girl, but thinking I'm going to have a chat to this girl. She's fit, yeah, but maybe she's got something interesting to say. And with that mindset, my shark's fin retracted and I managed to you know get into some interesting conversations once or twice it turned into romance like that's the way forward guys <laughs> I really want to touch on um, I know you spoke about in your recent one of your podcasts about um, becoming actually addicted to healthy foods and obviously entrepreneurs need to have certain behaviours that they need to be doing consistently how, yeah. how do you become firstly how do you become addicted to healthier food and how can that pass on to the behaviours you do to, to be entrepreneurial it's funny you should say I was at a meeting with an advertising company yesterday we were working with the Department of Health and um, were pitching to work with the Department of Health and they asked me exactly the same thing um, so that experiment is all about changing the hedonic value of, of food so like hedonic value meaning when you look at a donut uh, how much happiness is triggered in your reward pathway anticipating a lot of happiness shoving that thing in your face um, <laughs> And then, and then when you look at a carrot, how much, how much joy is, is there? How much hedonic value? And so in, it just took six weeks, right, of keeping people away from all the crap food. Actually, I don't know if it was six. I think it was just two weeks. In two weeks, they could change the, the objectively measured brain's hedonic response to images of different foods. Normally, it's the highly calorific, the sugary, fatty foods that, that makes the brain light up. But by... Uh, taking away their experience of those foods for two whole weeks. And so when those people satisfied their hunger, it was healthy foods, right? To be sated, to go from being hungry to, to a state of satiety, it is a hugely pleasurable experience. Or, or you know, when you're parched and you, and you put your head under the tap 
and you just drink and drink and drink and it's, it's like almost you almost feel ecstasy to get that water into you. <laughs> mm-hmm. But boys, this is the thing. The only reason we and any mammals have a reward system in the first place is in order to incentivize eating when hungry and drinking when thirsty and, and having sex. All of the other pleasures that stimulate that have just co-opted an ancient system. So like laughing and comedy stimulating it. It's, it's not designed to, to respond to comedy. It's just we humans have found a way to trigger it with comedy. Same with like drugs, we, we short circuit that same pathway. But um, yeah, so when you're only experienced for two solid weeks of feeling the pleasure of eating food when you're starving comes from healthy foods, then when you stick them in the scanner and show the response in the reward pathways to those foods, the responses to the um, high calorie, fatty, sugary foods goes down and then the response to the healthy ones goes up. So, so the moral of the story is, just in two weeks, you can change the way your brain responds to all sorts of different foods according to restricting your intake of everything for a short period of time and only allowing yourself access to the good stuff. So if someone was to say, switch off TV, stop reading crappy newspapers, start listening to more positive entrepreneurial talks, eventually they're going to be attracted to that over time. So th- this is this is what, what the... yes correct uh, but then the, the hook is when do you do this right and this is what we were discussing yesterday when we were thinking 40 to 60 year old people huge obesity problem loads of diabetes and, and, and the, the heart attacks and the, and the strokes that happen as a direct result of shoving sugary fatty food into your face all through the day every day for decades and decades right it just clogs up your blood vessels including your brain blood vessels it's incredibly bad for you how do you actually get people, rather than going, yeah, okay, I get it, and then not changing their behavior, how do you actually get them to start changing their behaviors? And the hook is, any massive life change is the time where you do it. When you get married, when you move into a house with someone new, because you change an environment, so you have to start new habits. When you have a, a, a life change, it's like you nearly die, or someone that you love nearly died. Oh, I, I had... I'll show you. I know that your audience can't see it, but can you see that scar? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, Since wow. I last saw you, I had surgery to pin the collarbone down, but in the process of doing that collarbone, they cut off all of the nerves that feed my hand completely by accident. Bloody the, the nerves were pressed for three weeks, um, and then they did another surgery to chop the bit of bone away. That was a major life thing, because my hand was paralyzed. Like I had, uh, you know, my wrist was completely limp. I had nothing in my triceps. And so I was like, okay, every, um, every cloud has a silver lining. This is a major life experience. I know that it's only when you're hugely disabled and then now look, physio, <laughs> regain these abilities because peripheral nerves can recover amazingly well. That's, you have to know what the game plan is and then wait for a huge life-changing um, event to happen and then you start that new habit. But does it always take that? Because I know we've spoke about that before, like the post-traumatic growth. Why does it have to take something so drastic going on? Why does it take the illness, you in hospital, you getting something terribly happening before that change? Is there no way to bypass that because, shit happening? <laughs> because we're lazy. Like ultimately, we, we try and do stuff with the minimal expenditure of energy. Mm-hmm. So that's that. you could call it efficiency, but really we're lazy. Um, and as well as being lazy, we're, we're set-piece specialists. So in childhood, we're always trying new things. When we become adults, we start honing abilities that we've done many times before and develop an expertise. We find comfort in those expertises, expertise. <laughs> and, 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 and then we start, we start repeating those behaviors more and more. We become less um, 
we have less of a proclivity to go outside of that area of expertise. So that's why we, we um, that's why we slow down our development, um, and that's why it takes a massive. You, you can incur a life change if you really want to change your habits. Move house. Just you know, <laughs> write write a list of habit changes and just phone up your landlord right now. And say I'm moving out, and then when you move to another part of town, have a list of things that you're going to do differently: eating, mm-hmm. exercise, blah 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 blah. Train, you know, doing one hour every day of training on X software program, half an hour every day of just doing X, just not being sat down, moving around, half an hour every day of playing a musical instrument, half, you know, and you have a list of things and then try and, so you make your schedule before you go through the major life change and either wait for it to happen or make it happen. But unfortunately, because we're all set, we're basically, it's another way of saying we're stuck in our ways. You know, our bad habits, old habits sort of die hard. Um, to get new habits in, you either have to have a massive change or as the man in the juice bar told me the other day, if you want to get people drinking juices, get them to have a carrot juice, a, a, like get a juicer, 20 quid on eBay, and then juice a carrot, and then start off by having that with your normal breakfast. Then start having a big one instead of your normal breakfast. That's your entry level, get, get more veggies into your life um, strategy. So start small and then grow and where does, um, with regard to like these new habits and things, obviously it's great having the good intentions and, and trying to start small and things like that, but where does willpower and self-discipline come in? Because quite often you can get into almost a good habit, you're, like you're, con- you're consistently doing something, but sometimes you can easily kind of drop off the, off the sort of edge and just kind of so go back when, into old habits when quite When people easily. do like the Weight Watchers, they lose like £10 and they go back on it and then they put on that £10 again and they do the same process again. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so that stuff is to do with this part of your brain here, just sort of above the bridge of your nose. It's called the orbitofrontal cortex, right? And without, or, or other parts of it, called the, the medial prefrontal cortex, where the two, two sides face each other. To inhibit impulsive behavior, that part of the brain has to do a lot of work. Um, and so if you look at adolescents compared to adults, adolescence it has it has to work so hard in order to in order to sort of rein in those impulses mm-hmm. now one thing you can do is to bear in mind that if you're running low on sugar if like you're just feeling tired and lethargic suggesting that you've got low blood sugar levels you are incapable of resisting the temptation to snap at your colleague or shove a piece of cake in your face when you go to the canteen so the trick is to bear in mind that you get irritable and you lose your ability to resist the impulse to do the wrong thing. And if you always have like some fruit on you, some bag of nuts or something, you eat something, bear in mind there's a 20-minute time lag between food hitting your stomach and your brain finding out about it. So eat, you think, oh, I'm getting peckish, and then eat, eat something healthy half an hour in advance of going down to satisfy your hunger properly. So you just have to postpone by half an hour having put some glucose in. Then you've got plenty of glucose swimming around your brain. And when the tempting food strikes the back of your eyeball, you'll be that little bit more likely to resist it. Or when you're going into a meeting that you know is going to be tense, make sure you take a 15-minute nap before you go in. You know, down a can of Coke, get some caffeine and sugar into it. Because if you're about to perform, it's okay to drink lots of raw sugar that gets dumped into your stomach, so long as you use it. The only problem is if, if you're just sitting around and you're doing it habitually, then it just gets tucked away in fat stores and you end up super obese. 
You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. it's that's why of, you should never negotiate in the evening. <laughs> well, that, no, that's and, and there's another thing helping like older people um, do better as they're dealing with age-related cognitive decline. Most people's brains work better in the morning. So get all of your really tough stuff done. Switch your phones off. Don't answer emails. You know, protect certain periods of time where you don't let yourself be disturbed. And it, you know, it depends on your life. But for me, it would be 10 to 11. You try and call me. You try and text me. You try and do anything. I will ignore you. And everyone knows in my world that you can't get hold of this guy between 10 and 11, between 3 and 4. End of story. Because otherwise, you spend all your time responding to beeps and buzzes and how urgent is it it can't wait an hour bollocks but we all train ourselves to think we have to respond immediately to everything mm-hmm. obviously we're coming up to the end and it's hitting an hour now I'd just like to get maybe obviously from your book sort your brain out could you maybe give like free tips or free action steps that people can start doing today to, to sort their brains out yeah um, gosh which are the best three <laughs> don't have to be free but <laughs> okay so we always have gut instincts on what we should do and sometimes they steer us really well sometimes they steer us really badly and to know whether or not you should trust your gut instincts you have to think how much experience do I have making this type of uh, decision the more because you know you're talking about the brain models what to expect in the world Mm -hmm. and the more times you've selected a sandwich for lunch the better you will know your own taste, the better you will know the sort of variability and standards of, of different cheese sandwiches, different, you know, like tomato in a sandwich can often make the bread soggy, you know? Like, once you've experienced it, and with something like selecting a sandwich, like we've done it a hundred times, a thousand times, we've, tr- we've tried so many different sandwiches, you kind of know instinctively what's going to satisfy most of the time. But if it's something like um, buying a flat, and you've never, you've never bought anything so big before, buying a car, then you've got to take much longer to stuff information into your head, speak to friends, speak to experts, read reviews, you know, really educate yourself to, to a significant degree. And only after you've done that data input can you trust your gut instincts. Because you'll always have gut instincts one way or another, but they'll be spurious to begin with. And it's only through trial and error experience that you can start instinctively knowing what's the right balance of risk and benefit. Cool. Cool. that's that's your your three in one the the best things you can do for your brain sleep the one thing that gets squeezed in these busy lives of ours is sleep Mm -hmm. is the most important thing for brain health in the short term performing well on a day to day basis but also in the long term hanging on to your marbles for as long as possible sleep is incredibly important Um, and so to help sleep banish all electrical goods from your bedroom because otherwise the environment of your bedroom is synonymous with entertainment with watching, um, you know, watching your favourite series, playing a video game, whatever. If it's a place where only sleep happens, when you get up to go to that place, your brain will know it's sleeping time. Uh, earplugs. If you live in a city, stick some earplugs in because it's probably the the van accelerating past your house, you know, full of newspapers at 4:30 a.m. that wakes you up every morning. And if you do wake up in the middle of the night, don't reward yourself. Don't. Do something nice. Do something horrible. Go and clean the oven. Go and iron a shirt. Do something. Because then if you punish your subconscious for waking up in the middle of the night, you won't wake up. You won't wake up the next day. If you 
listen to a podcast, which is what someone said yesterday they do, or catch up on a soap opera that you, you're so busy you haven't had time to watch, you're effectively rewarding yourself, for, for your subconscious, for waking up at four in the morning. So that ain't going to help. Um, and, then, and then, yeah, thirdly, exercise. Exercise is so good. But it, you don't have to go down and like, smash the gym for an hour, hour and a half. Just 20 minutes on a, on, a, on a bicycle, 20 minutes, walk the dog for 20 minutes. Do that twice a day. It's, it's in terms of keeping your brain healthy in the short and long term, it's about not being sedentary. It's not about getting your heart rate up to 160, 180 beats per minute. Like that's good for your body and your heart, but in terms of being keeping your blood pipes clean and your heart strong, so long as you're not spending like 12 hours a day sat down, it doesn't really matter what you do so long as you do something. So there you go. You've got your three. My laptop's almost out of battery, and I'm going to bid you adieu. Um, have we got two seconds just to ask? Because obviously the podcast is called Powerful Nonsense. So is that, could you tell us what is the most powerful piece of advice you've ever been given, and what's the biggest load of nonsense you've ever heard? And then we'll cut it there. Never type angry. Is the best piece of advice. That's my dad. Good old dad. Um, and what's the most powerful no, not powerful nonsense what's, and the, what's the biggest load of nonsense you've ever heard God, there's so much so much <laughs> nonsense out there um, <laughs> <question>. mm. <laughs> see I, I dismiss nonsense so quickly I don't remember any of it um, anything oh, yeah that you can't teach an old dog new tricks that how, that piece of nonsense is so embedded in the minds of most people. Like whenever I talk to anyone over the age of 40 plus, they're like, yeah, but you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It's like bollocks. I bet you, I bet you someone's grandparent out there never used the internet before now can just about send an email. Mm-hmm. They're not gonna be as good as a, as a sort of tech native like you boys who can't remember a time where there wasn't internet. <laughs> so, you know, the, 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 the rate of development is slower but you can definitely teach people new things at any age. My folks, 65, uh, 65, 64, like, sorry, mum, dad, you ages away, but like, um, they're constantly like YouTube videos on meditation, playing, my dad's maxed out Lumosity, he's 99 point something percent on everything on that train. Go to the gym twice, three times a week, always trying out new dances. Basically everything I say helps protect them against dementia. They, They just go and do it immediately. They're completely like up for living forever. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Brilliant. So, um, how can people reach out to you? So, if someone wants to find out more, how they, they want to watch you on YouTube, could you quickly give us yeah, tell so, us how they can get uh, in touch? You've got a business question? Neuroform.com. N e u r o f o r m e d. Neuroform.com. Um, if you want to see the sort of book stuff, that's sortyourbrainout.com. And I put every month I put up a post that's relevant to sorting your brain out like stuff that I found and if it's to do with broadcast like what's good well actually drjack.co.uk has like 100 articles on a wide variety of brain related stuff no advertising it's just all free information out there for people to enjoy cool well thank you very much for your time I know it's been a long one but it's very been much fun appreciate one. it it was just a chat it wasn't as arduous as I was expecting <laughs> you thought we was going to pack the menu we thought we was going to drill down yeah no it's all good but yeah thanks again for your time really appreciate it absolute pleasure thanks guys and um, Jen we should go for a drink sometime definitely 100% talk, talk business <laughs> see you soon Catch you guys later cheers Bye. take care 
So that was the Doctor. The Doctor. I really want to hum the Doctor Who tune now. Maybe we'll add it. Yeah, that. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I can't wait to get me an Oculus so that I can be in the virtual reality I world. You want an rewiring my brain. I know. I hadn't even, because I was saying to Jem that I have been hearing a lot about this virtual reality stuff from another podcast that I listen to about video games. Hadn't even thought about the application for psychology and things like that. Um, and, and kind of overcoming those social fears that people have. I just thought that's a great idea. We're going to become, we, we are going to become dating geniuses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although, although I wonder if a virtual reality slap hurts less than a real slap around the face. I'm sure they'll program that in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if they can get the uh, the pain receptors on your, exactly. in your nerves, that'd be great. That I think that's a while. I also like that thing you said about the sleep, like um, punishing yourself for waking up at night. Yeah. And it's so true. Like you wake up at night and you go and kind of stick on a podcast or you go uh-huh. get yourself some food or you do something like that and uh-huh. it just you are basically rewarding yourself for being awake. Yeah, rather than just kind of being like, just go back to sleep. You're going, oh, well, I'm not going to get back to sleep anyway. So screw it. I'm going to have a drink or whatever <laughs> whatever you decide to do that was probably the worst choice of anyway anyway <laughs> so yeah there was loads of stuff in there mm-hmm. I mean I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to actually going back and seeing what we actually spoke about because there was uh, so much that I don't know my brain took it all in yeah one go. I know like <laughs> I mean the guy is a genius quite frankly I mean he is a doctor so you kind of assume he has some some, some sort of, of intellectual and clearly he does Anyway, cool. <laughs> babbling so much today. This is serious babble. <laughs> anyway, thank you for listening. Um, five star ratings all round. Yes, please. And um, yeah, hit, hit us up. up with a hit us hit us hit up, 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 up on hit Twitter hit <laughs> <laughs> at c k y i l d i z. That's for Gem and for me. You can tweet me at Wayne underscore Ingram. And if you want to send us an email and tell us to stop babbling so much, you can do so at Gem at powerfulnonsense.com or Wayne at Oh, you even took my email address away from me. You get and remember, we'll break down this episode on the blog and uh-huh. get on there, see the books that um, Jack spoke about, and buy his uh, his book. Sort your brain out. Everybody needs to do do that. So mm-hmm. sort it. Yeah. And um, that's all. More podcasts coming. Stay tuned. Peace out. Much love. Love to you all. See you later. Toodles. <laughs> <laughs>